This is Guns and Butter. focus of classical economics was to tax wealth, not income. And obviously, the tax burden was going to fall on the wealthy, and, and uh, on the landlords first and foremost, then on the bankers, and then on the monopolists. Uh, that was what socialism was, the idea of uh, creating an economy with a circular flow that the taxes would be paid by the wealthy, and the government would use this tax revenue uh, to spend on infrastructure, schools, uh, productive credit uh, to help the economy and uh, to make economies more competitive. And it seemed that in that sense, socialism was uh, going to be the most efficient capitalist economy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The Vocabulary of Economic Deception. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst, and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super-Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. His latest books are Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Destroy the Global Economy, and J is for Junk Economics, A Guide to Reality in an Age of Deception. Today we discuss J is for Junk Economics, an A to Z guide that describes how the world economy really works and who the winners and losers really are. We cover contemporary terms that are misleading or poorly understood, as well as many important concepts that have been abandoned, many on purpose, from the long history of political economy. Dr. Michael Hudson, welcome to Guns and Butter again. Well, it's good to be back, Bonnie. You write that your newest book, J is for Junk Economics, a dictionary and accompanying essays, was drafted more than a decade ago for a book to have been entitled The Fictitious Economy. You tried several times without success to find a publisher. Why wouldn't publishers at the time take on your new book? Most publishers like to do books that are like the last uh, book that sold well. And uh, 10 years ago, uh, people thought that the economy was doing just fine, and uh, I was looked at as a kind of Dr. Doom, uh, which uh, did very well for me in the 1970s when I was uh, talking about uh, where the economy was going. But uh, they wanted upbeat books, and they wanted uh, really, if I'm going to talk about the fact that the economy is polarizing and getting uh, poorer, uh, how you can make a million dollars as the economy gets poorer and uh, people get more strapped and uh, the economy polarizes. And I didn't want to write a book about how to uh, get rich by writing the uh, Republican or neoliberal dismantling the economy. If I wanted to do that, I would have uh, stayed on Wall Street uh, as a Wall Street analyst. I wanted to explain how uh, the way in which the economy was getting rich was actually impoverishing it. And uh, what seemed to be uh, uh, getting better and better uh, was really uh, masked by the fact that the words that were used by the uh, media, uh, by television, by the New York Times, uh, uh, they were euphemizing all of what was happening. In other words, 
uh, a euphemism is uh, something to make a, a bad trend look good. So uh, if a landlord gets rich by uh, exploiting the tenants and forcing them all out, that's called wealth creation. Or if uh, you can distract people to celebrate wealth and splendor at the top of the economic pyramid, uh, then they're going to not be so aware of the bottom 99% and how things are uh, doing below the top 1%. Could you describe the format of J is for Junk Economics, a guide to reality in an age of deception, as an A to Z dictionary with additional essays? It seems to me that this format makes a good reference book that can be picked up and read at any point. That's exactly what I intended it to be. Uh, I had written uh, the companion volume basically as an outline of my economic theory, uh, Killing the Host, which was how the financial sector was taking over the economy in a parasitic way. But I, I think that I saw with the vocabulary that if people have a basically clear set of economic concepts, basically those of classical economics, value, price, rent, uh, and, and a basic knowledge of what the leading economist said, uh, and just, just the words, that the words would almost organize themselves into a worldview. Uh, a correct vocabulary and uh, understanding of what the words meant would sort of imply, you know, gradually you put it all together and uh, they all form an interconnected system. And at the same time, I wanted to show uh, how junk economics uses uh, euphemisms and what uh, Orwell called doublethink to uh, uh, confuse people about the economy. And uh, I found in academia that uh, the role of most what's called think tanks, which are really lobbying institutions, is to do what uh, advertisers for toothpaste companies and uh, consumer product companies do. They try to uh, present images that are meant to uh, portray their product, in this case, neoliberal economics, uh, dismantling of protection of the environment, dismantling of consumer protection, uh, a stopping of uh, prosecution of financial fraud. Uh, all of this is wealth creation instead of impoverishment uh, for the economy at large. And uh, so basically, uh, this book reviews the whole economic vocabulary and the language that people use to describe the reality. Uh, Sixty years ago, when I was in college, uh, at that time they were still teaching the linguistic ideas of Benjamin Lee Whorf. And Whorf's idea uh, was that uh, people's language affects how they perceive reality. And different cultures and different uh, uh, linguistic groups have different modes of expression. And I found at that time that if I was going to, say, a concert and speaking German, uh, I would be saying something that was substantially different from what if I was speaking uh, English. Uh, at that time, not, there weren't many English-speaking people that went to hear classical music, uh, at least not on the uh, upper ranks uh, of the orchestra buildings uh, that I could afford seats in. And so... I realize that let's look at uh, the economic vocabulary as propaganda. 
And if we can understand how the words that you hear are largely propaganda words or where they've changed the meaning around to exactly the opposite of what the classical economists uh, meant, uh, then you can untangle the propaganda and you can, uh, you can juxtapose uh, a more functional vocabulary that helps you understand what's actually happening. You write that, quote, the terms rentier and usury that played so central a role in past centuries now sound anachronistic and have been replaced with more positive Orwellian doublethink, which is what you've begun to explain. In fact, your book, J is for Junk Economics, A Guide to Reality in an Age of Deception, is all about the degradation of vocabulary to hide reality, particularly the state of the economy. Just as history is written by the victors, you point out that economic vocabulary is defined by today's victors, the rentier financial class. How is this deception accomplished? Well, it accomplished in a number of ways. Uh, uh, the first way was to stop uh, teaching the history of economic thought. When I went to school again uh, 60 years ago, uh, every economics graduate had to study uh, the history of economic thought. You'd get Adam Smith and Ricardo and John Stuart Mill, Marx, uh, Veblen, and their analysis was they had a common denominator. And this common denominator was to focus on society's unearned income, which they called rent. They wanted to say there's a distinction between productive work and unproductive work. There's a distinction between wealth and overhead. Uh, and the classic analysis uh, was that of the physiocrats and David Ricardo uh, of landlords and saying, look, uh, the landlord class inherits its wealth from ancestors who conquered the land uh, by military force. And uh, uh, the landlords extract rent, but they don't do anything at all to create a product. They don't do anything at all to create output. Uh, the same uh, with other recipients of rent. And the word that was used throughout the 19th century was rentier. It's a French word, and the word rent in French meant uh, the income from a government bond. It was, it was a coupon clipper. It was uh, uh, interest. So the classical economists all had in common a description of rent and interest that's something that a real free market would get rid of. Uh, to Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill, down to Marx and the socialists. A free market was one that was free of a parasitic uh, overclass that got money without doing any work, that got money by purely exploitative means, by uh, charging rents that didn't have to be paid, by charging money for interest, uh, by, by charging money for public uh, services and public utilities that a well-organized government should provide freely uh, to people uh, instead of letting privileged uh, people put up toll booths on roads and uh, uh, toll booths for technology and patent rights and things that just enable them to uh, extract wealth. So the whole focus of economics up until World War I was the contrast between production and extraction. Well, this was ultimately, uh, there was uh, an economic fight, and the parasites won. And the first thing, uh, the rentiers, uh, the financial class, the monopolists, the 1% uh, did was 
just to say, we've, we've got to stop teaching the history of economic thought so that people don't even have an understanding that there is such a thing as economic rent. Uh, we have to uh, take the slogan of the socialist reformers, which was a free market, uh, and say that a free market is one free from socialism, not free from the parasites, not free from landlords, not free from uh, bankers, uh, and uh, free from monopolists. So they turned uh, the vocabulary upside down to mean exactly the opposite. And in order to promote this deceptive uh, vocabulary, uh, they had to erase all memory of the fact that these words originally meant something just the opposite. How has economic history been rewritten by redefining the meaning of words? What is an example of this? For instance, what does the word reform mean now as opposed to what reform used to mean? Well, reform used to mean uh, something that was uh, social democratic. Reform used to mean uh, getting rid of uh, special privileges, uh, getting rid of monopolies, uh, letting labor organize. Uh, it meant uh, controlling the prices that monopolies could charge, and it meant uh, regulating the economy to prevent fraud and to prevent exploitation and to prevent unearned income. Well, today, uh, neoliberal vocabulary, the Nobel Prize uh, reflects the neoliberal economics curriculum, and reform means getting rid of socialism. Reform means stripping away all of labor protection. It means uh, deregulating the economy. It means getting rid of uh, uh, any kind of price controls or uh, getting rid of uh, protections of labor, getting rid of consumer protection, getting rid of environmental protection. It means creating a lawless economy where the 1% are completely in control without any checks and balances at all. So reform today means getting rid of all of the reforms that were promoted in the 19th and early 20th century. What were the real reforms of the progressive era? Well, you had labor unions uh, to begin with to protect uh, labor. You had uh, limitations on uh, the uh, the work week and the work day, how much work people could do. Uh, there were safety protections. There was protection of uh, the quality of food uh, and consumer goods to prevent uh, dangerous goods. There was the whole New Deal legislation that uh, began to take basic uh, monopolies of public service, such as roads, uh, communities, communication system uh, out of the hands of monopolists and make them public so that instead of using a road or a uh, communication uh, phone system to exploit people by charging whatever the market would bear, you'd provide basic needs uh, at the lowest possible cost or even freely so that the economy uh, would have a low uh, cost of living and a low overhead. Uh, the whole idea of reform was to get rid of socially unnecessary income. Uh, the idea was uh, if landlords were going to get rent for properties that they did nothing to improve, but just uh, raise the rents whenever cities built uh, more transportation or more parks or better schools, all this rent would be taxed away. And initially, uh, the income tax was a basic reform in uh, 1913 and 14. The idea, and the only 1% 
of the America's population had to pay an income tax. Most people were tax-free because the idea was that uh, you wanted to tax the wealthiest uh, 1 or 2%, the people who simply uh, lived off their bondholdings or lived off their uh, stocks or lived off their monopolies or their real estate, and you didn't want to uh, tax labor, and you didn't want to tax uh, industry, that companies that actually produced uh, something. Well, uh, these reforms made America the most productive, lowest cost, competitive, and also the most equal economy in the entire world. But gradually, this has been undermined uh, more and more. And now, uh, if you're a monopolist or if you're a uh, bankster uh, or a financial uh, fraudster or if a land speculator, uh, your idea of reform is to uh, get rid of all of these laws that protect consumers, that protect tenants, that protect home buyers, that protect the public at large, and protect uh, the country's uh, atmosphere, free air, and free water. Uh, so if, if you're a coal company uh, or an oil company, uh, your idea of reform is to get rid of the Clean Air Act, as the uh, Trump administration has been doing. The counterpart to junk science is junk economics, to defend all of this idea that a world without any laws at all against the wealthy, that laws are only against uh, the poor, only against uh, consumers, for instance, for uh, downloading music or stealing somebody's patented songs or controls, that uh, the world is turned inside out this way. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The Vocabulary of Economic Deception. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. According to 19th century classical economists, what is fictitious capital, and why is this distinction no longer made in economics? <laughs> That's a wonderful question. Uh, the word fictitious capital is usually associated with Marx, but it actually was used by many people in the uh, 19th century. It was even used by uh, right-wing libertarians uh, such as Henry George. Fictitious capital was the idea that somebody could have wealth in the form of a claim on society that was purely extractive, but it wasn't a means of production. Uh, real capital was supposed to be a means of production, a factory, machinery, tools, uh, things that were used to produce uh, output. But capital in the form of an ownership privilege, like owning a building or a land or a patent uh, or a monopoly and charging whatever you could, did not add anything to production at all. It was purely extractive. You say that by the late 19th century, reform movements were gaining the upper hand that nearly everyone saw industrial capitalism evolving into what was widely called socialism. How would you describe the socialism that classical economists like Mill, Ricardo, or Marx envisioned? Well, they all called themselves socialists, and uh, there were many kinds of socialism. Uh, the Christians uh, promoted Christian socialism, uh, and they believed that uh, capitalism was a transitory stage of uh, sort of the remnants of feudalism, uh, leaving the, uh, the wealthy, landlord, hereditary ruling class in power that was created by military invasions of uh, uh, England, France, uh, Germany, the rest of Europe. Uh, and the whole idea 
was that uh, socialization would run factories and uh, operate land and uh, provide public uh, services uh, for the economy at large to grow instead of uh, imposing austerity and letting uh, the wealthy classes exploit uh, the rest of the economy at large. So socialism uh, until World War I was uh, increasingly popular uh, because everybody thought, well, capitalism is evolving. Uh, there's no such thing as capitalism as such. Uh, everything is in motion. And uh, what the classical economics and uh, that sort of culminated in Marx uh, spelled out was, well, let's look at the laws of motion of society. Let's see uh, where it's all leading. And uh, the idea, not only of Marx as a socialist, but uh, American uh, business school professors like Simon Patton at the Wharton School said, well, the uh, economy that is going to dominate the world is the economy that is the most efficient in uh, preventing monopoly, in, in preventing uh, absentee land ownership, in preventing economic rent, and uh, using almost all of its income for wages and profits, not for rent or interest or monopoly rents. And so uh, the business class itself in the United States, in Germany, even in England, was in favor of reform. And uh, this all stemmed very largely from the battle that occurred in England after the Napoleonic Wars were over in 1815, when uh, Ricardo, representing the banking class, uh, was arguing against uh, Reverend Malthus, the population theorist, who was also the lobbyist for the landlord class. And Malthus was urging agricultural protectionism for the landlords so that they would get more and more uh, rent from their land as prices uh, were high. And Ricardo uh, represented the banks and said, look, if you have high uh, food prices in order to uh, generate more rents for the agricultural landlords, then you're going to have high labor costs. And if you have high labor costs, then England cannot be the industrial workshop of the world. Uh, in order for England to become the industrial supreme power, we have to overcome the landlord class. We don't protect it. We do just the opposite. Uh, we protect industry. Well, at that time, uh, Ricardo's banking class uh, was also a carryover from uh, the medieval period. And in the medieval period, uh, Christianity had banned uh, the charging of interest as uh, being unchristian. So the banks were able to make their money, not by calling their loans interest, but by making a, a foreign exchange transaction called agio. And so the banks, even in Ricardo's day in the 19th century, uh, made most of their money by financing foreign trade and charging uh, a foreign exchange fee. As your listeners will know if you've ever tried to change money at the airport, what a big uh, rake-off uh, the uh, change booths take there, you know, compared to the local banks uh, here. Well, uh, later in the 19th century, bankers began to shift increasingly, especially as land ownership became democratized. More and more people the population uh, began to own their land. So today, we're no longer in a situation that existed uh, uh, 200 years ago uh, in England. Uh, you have almost two-thirds of the American population owning its own homes, and uh, in Scandinavia and much of Europe, 80% of the population are homeowners. So they don't pay rent to the landlords. 
But what they do instead is they pay their income as interest to the mortgage lenders because nobody has enough money to buy uh, a few hundred thousand dollar uh, home with the cash in the pocket. They have to uh, borrow the money, and uh, the money, the income that used to be paid uh, to rent to landlord is now paid as interest to the bankers. And so you have the same kind of exploitation uh, today uh, that you had then. Well, the socialists already by the late 19th century were trying to were advocating that. Well, wait a minute, money doesn't have to be uh, the gold uh, and silver that uh, the wealthy classes create. Uh, every government can create its own money. Uh, that's what the United States did in the Civil War with the greenbacks. It simply printed the money. So there was an idea that not only should uh, the land be owned by uh, the public sector, by the government, but that uh, banking should be a public utility so that you wouldn't have to pay the kind of uh, fees that you have today. And that uh, land uh, would be fully taxed so that uh, instead of paying an income tax, either by uh, labor or even by industry, uh, people, people would uh, pay tax on wealth. The whole focus of classical economics was to tax wealth, not income. And obviously, the tax burden was going to fall on the wealthy, and, and uh, on the landlords first and foremost, then on the bankers, and then on the monopolists. Uh, that was what socialism was, the idea of uh, creating an economy with a circular flow that the taxes would be paid by the wealthy, and the government would use this tax revenue uh, to spend on infrastructure, schools, uh, productive credit uh, to help the economy, and uh, to make economies uh, more competitive. And it seemed that in that sense, socialism was uh, going to be the most efficient capitalist economy until the word was hijacked by uh, the Russian Revolution, which, of course, became a travesty of uh, Marxism and a travesty of the word socialism. You write that, quote, today's anti-classical vocabulary accordingly redefines free markets as ones that are free for rent extractors and that rent and interest reflect their recipients' contribution to wealth, not their privileges to extract economic rent from the economy. How do you differentiate between productive and extractive sectors, and how is it that the extractive sectors, essentially finance, insurance, and real estate, actually hurt the economy? Well, uh, take uh, finance, insurance, and real estate as an example. If uh, you're a real estate developer or a lobbyist, uh, you want to lower the taxes on real estate so that uh, when people are able to pay more and more money uh, to rent because the economy is getting richer, or when uh, a property in a neighborhood becomes more valuable because uh, the government will build a new subway like uh, the New York City's uh, Second Avenue subway, uh, that's going to increase the land values quite a bit. Uh, the landlords all along the subway line uptown uh, simply raised the rents. Now, that meant that they're getting more, uh, more wealthy, and if people are lucky enough to have a uh, condo uh, or a townhouse up there, then uh, they get more wealthy. But uh, none of this actually creates more living space. None of this creates uh, more output. It simply means that uh, the government has spent an enormous amount of uh, money, about $10 billion, on this 
subway extension. And instead of, of recapturing this money by uh, taxing the increased uh, land value all along the subway route, they've taxed uh, the workers in New York. They've taxed the labor. They've issued bonds uh, whose interest has to be paid by uh, local, uh, local real estate taxes of everybody, not just on the Upper East Side, and uh, the wages uh, of everybody. So that kind of real estate uh, wealth is unproductive. It's, uh, it's unearned income because the landlords didn't increase the value of this property on the Upper East Side. The city did by uh, building uh, the subway. Same thing with insurance. When Obama passed the uh, Republican Obamacare uh, law for the pharmaceutical industry uh, and the health management industry, the cost of medical care went way, way up in the United States and essentially was organized in a way to be a giveaway uh, to the financial monopolies that run the uh, health care programs and finance them uh, and the pharmaceutical uh, monopolies. So uh, none of this increased expense that people are undergoing to pay for medical care actually increases the quality of medical care. Uh, in fact, in America, the more that's paid for medical care, the more the service declines because the increase in medical care is paid to health insurance companies that spend all their money trying to legally fight against the consumer, against uh, people who try to uh, recover the cost of their, uh, their medical care. So the uh, effect is predatory and not productive. And then finally, you have finance. You have finance taking uh, almost all of the growth in GDP in the last uh, 10 years since the Lehman Brothers crisis and, and the Obama bailout uh, has gone uh, to, the, to the biggest banks. And uh, the, the government has spent $4.3 trillion of uh, basically creating reserves and bailing out uh, the large banks that were insolvent as a result of bad loans and outright financial fraud 10 years ago. Uh, banks like Citibank and Wells Fargo uh, and Bank of America. So uh, their activities, uh, the fraud, the uh, uh, junk mortgage loans, all of this is uh, unnecessary and uh, merely predatory. None of, none of this behavior has uh, actually increased wealth. And in fact, there's a growing understanding today that the financial sector uh, has become so dysfunctional that it is simply a dead weight on the economy, that it's burdening the economy down with uh, increasing financial charges. You can think of student loans uh, as an example, uh, instead of actually helping uh, the economy grow. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian, Dr. Michael Hudson, today's show, The Vocabulary of Economic Deception. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So just to reiterate, what is the classical distinction between earned and unearned income? Basically, uh, this distinction follows from uh, the theory of value and price. Value uh, of a product is the actual necessary cost of production. Uh, the labor cost and the raw materials and machinery uh, and what it costs to physically, tangibly produce a, a good. Price is what people are willing to pay. And the margin of price over and above value, uh, the gap, uh, was what they called uh, economic rent. And the focus of classical value theory was to simply 
uh, isolate this economic rent as unearned income, which it was the aim of society either to uh, prevent it from occurring in the first place by uh, anti-monopoly regulation or uh, uh, by uh, public land ownership, or to tax it away in cases where you, you can't help it uh, going up. For instance, it's natural for uh, neighborhoods to become uh, more valuable and high-priced over time as the economy gets richer, uh, but it doesn't cost more uh, to build buildings there, especially if a building was built 100 years ago and uh, rents keep going up and up and up on buildings that are already in place. Uh, this increased rent does not uh, reflect any cost of production at all. It's a free lunch. Well, the neoliberals, most notoriously Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago, uh, kept saying there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, almost all of the money of the richest 1% in this country is a free lunch. All their wealth has been a free lunch. And of course, they're going to say there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, We earn our wealth. And that's uh, what people like uh, uh, the Wall Street firms, Goldman Sachs, say our partners are uh, the most productive in the country because look at how much we're paid. But they don't earn their wealth. Uh, the economy would get along much better without Goldman Sachs, uh, without banks being run the way they are, and without the financial system uh, or the health insurance system uh, or real estate being organized in the way that it is. I noticed that you used the term rent for unearned income. Is rent the same as profit or not? No, profit is earned. The idea is that if you invest in a factory uh, uh, to produce uh, cars or uh, consumer goods, uh, you're actually producing something, and profit isn't... Uh, the classical economists all viewed profit as an element of cost, because if you're going to have a private ownership economy, and uh, the socialists uh, still uh, were talking about uh, private ownership, but private ownership in a system that was run uh, to benefit society as a whole. Uh, if, if you uh, make a profit by a productive act, then you've earned the money. You've earned it by being productive. Uh, but economic rent is uh, very different from profit. Rent is not uh, earned by building a factory. Uh, if, it's, if the pharmaceutical companies earn rent, uh, it's for charging much more for the drugs they produce than it actually costs to produce the drugs, especially if the research and development for the drugs is all paid for by the government in the first place uh, and simply given away to the pharmaceutical companies, as is the rule uh, today. So uh, rent is uh, a super profit. Rent is something over and above profit that is uh, profits are necessary to induce investors to uh, keep uh, producing more and uh, helping society. Uh, But rent is not necessary at all. If you uh, got rid of the rent, you wouldn't uh, discourage uh, production at all because that's uh, purely uh, an overhead charge, uh, whereas profits are a production charge. Well, thank you for that distinction between rent and profit. That's a very important uh, thing to understand. I probably describe it more clearly in the book where I give the quotations. You point out that interest and rent are reported as earnings, as if bankers and landlords produce gross domestic product in the form of credit and ownership services. How do you think that interest and rent should be reported? 
they should be called interest and rent. Uh, uh, you you have the wealthiest classes having have taken over the national income accounting system uh, to represent what they're doing, not as overhead, not as parasitism, but as actual production. For instance, uh, suppose you have a credit card and uh, you miss a payment. You miss a payment on, say, a student loan uh, or your electric bill or your rent, and the credit card company says, well, we're raising your interest charge from 11% to 29%. This 29% uh, is called financial services in the uh, national income account. And the financial service is uh, uh, simply uh, charging more of a penalty rate. The pretense is that everything that a bank charges, uh, penalties or uh, uh, higher interest, is providing a service instead of extracting money. Now, the classical economists would have taken uh, all of this, uh, uh, this financial rake-off and subtracted it from output and say, look, this is, this is the overhead. This has to be subtracted from the cost of doing business and living. But instead, uh, it's just been in the last uh, generation that uh, all of this financial income has actually been added to the gross uh, national product accounts instead of subtracting it, uh, as the classical economists would have done, or simply not counting it, as uh, used to be done before a generation ago. And uh, I don't think there's any school, economics department in the United States, that actually teaches national income accounting. Uh, the last course, I taught a course in that at uh, the new school here in New York in uh, 1971, uh, but I don't think there, there's been any uh, uh, treatment of it. And you can be sure that most uh, reporters and uh, the financial press don't get into the nitty-gritty of going through these national accounts, so they don't realize that all of a sudden the national accounts have been turned into a self-serving, basically, propaganda celebration for uh, the exploiters uh, and uh, pretending that the economy is going up when a real realistic uh, description would show that the economy is going down and uh, but that the 1% are extracting more and more and imposing austerity as the American economy becomes more debt-ridden, as student debt goes up, as mortgage debt goes up, and as people have to pay more for uh, uh, medical care and for basic needs, uh, all of this is treated somehow uh, as if the economy is getting richer because the 1% are counting uh, all of their takings as a product, not as uh, a cost. How does government fiscal policy, taxation, and expenditure influence the economy? Well, that's what modern monetary theory uh, is all about. Uh, when the, a government runs a deficit, uh, it pumps money into the economy. Uh, for instance, uh, the United States is able to run deficits and uh, avoid the kind of unemployment and austerity that you have in Europe. I think in uh, one of our talks uh, on this show before, well, I talked about you know the, the problem that Europe is in. Uh, they're not allowed to run under the Constitution of the Eurozone, Eurozone countries are not allowed to run a budget deficit of more than 3%. And they actually aim at a surplus. And that means that the government doesn't provide uh, the economy with money. It doesn't spend money into the economy. Instead, people have to get their money by borrowing from the banks and paying more and more interest. And the result is that uh, all of Europe is uh, on the road to looking like Greece looks 
uh, or Italy looks, uh, completely debt-strapped uh, economies that uh, are kept artificially alive by uh, the government creating money only to give to the banks, but not to spend uh, into the economy to help it uh, recover and to help support uh, demand. So uh, the classical economist said the proper role of government is to uh, create more and more uh, social infrastructure. Uh, it should be the government that builds roads, not uh, private enterprise making toll roads. It should be the government that provides public health, not uh, private sector uh, health companies uh, that are going to charge uh, extortionate prices for their drugs and whatever the market should bear. It's the government that should uh, run the prisons, not private uh, prison companies that uh, you know simply use uh, cheap labor to uh, make a profit uh, and advocate that more and more people get arrested for them to make more and more of a profit uh, incarcerating them. So the question is, what is the government going to spend money on, and how can it spend money into the economy in a way that helps it grow? Like, imagine if uh, this trillion dollars a year that's spent on arms and military uh, in California and uh, the districts of uh, all the key congressmen on the budget committee. Imagine if this uh, military spending were actually spent in building up roads, schools, transportation, providing free medical care. Uh, this country could become a utopia. But instead, the uh, wealthy classes have kidnapped government and taken it over to spend on themselves instead of on the economy at large. Interest is tax deductible, whereas profit is taxable. Does the tax deductibility of interest have a major impact on the economy as a whole? Yes, because it encourages uh, companies to raise money by going into debt. Uh, and this uh, tax uh, deductibility of interest led to the whole corporate rating movement of uh, the 1980s. Suppose that a company makes uh, $100 uh, million a year in, in profit. Uh, and is paying this out to its stockholders in dividends. Uh, this profit was taxed at that time in the 1980s at 50%. So uh, you could only spend uh, $50 million to the stockholders. Uh, the stockholders basically then as today were mainly uh, the wealthiest layer of the population. Well, the corporate raiders said, look, I can borrow a money, uh, enough money from other uh, banks to buy this company and I'll buy all the stockholders out. I'll make a public uh, issue. I pay off the stockholders and instead of having stocks, we have debt. Well, now the company can pay $100 million of earnings uh, all in interest instead of only $50 million uh, earnings to stockholders. So the wealthiest uh, classes in the United States and in other countries decided that we don't want to own stocks anymore. We want to own bonds because uh, uh, corporations can pay twice as much in interest as they can in uh, stocks. Well, the advantage of uh, companies paying stocks is when uh, business conditions become bad and profits fall, you can cut back the dividend. But if you have borrowed the money and you owe this $100 million to bondholders and your earnings suddenly go down, then you're insolvent and you go bankrupt. And uh, the result was not only a wave of bankruptcy ever since the 1980s, as uh, uh, companies become more and more debt pyramided, but also the company's uh, heads will go to the labor unions and say, well, you know, we're going to have to declare bankruptcy, and I'm afraid that's going to wipe out all of your pension funds. 
uh, you can save us from bankruptcy by changing your pension fund around. And instead of getting the guaranteed uh, uh, retirement uh, pension that we've promised you, uh, we'll get a defined contribution plan where all you know is what you're going to pay in every month, and uh, we'll pay you whatever's left uh, when you retire. So basically, the the shift from an equity economy into a uh, debt economy has not only enriched this uh, wealthy class at the top, all the, all the statistics turned around in 1980 uh, for almost every country uh, when this occurred. But it also, by indebting the companies, uh, it's made them much more fragile uh, and much more higher cost because now uh, companies have to factor in the price of all these interest payments to the bondholders uh, and the corporate raiders who've taken them over instead of uh, not having it at a cost as uh, under equity. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The Vocabulary of Economic Deception. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, do you think that changes should be made to the tax deductibility of interest? Sure. If, if interest were, were to be taxed, that would uh, uh, leave less motivation, less incentive for companies to keep adding uh, to debt. It would stop uh, the corporate rating movement. Uh, it would uh, be a precondition for companies being run to minimize the cost of what they produce and to... Uh, serve their labor force more and their consumers and their customers uh, rather than exploiting them. So uh, this shift in the tax policy is a a precondition. Basically, uh, I think wealth should be taxed, not income. I think that the uh, FICA wage withholding that now uh, absorbs almost uh, 16% uh, of most wage earning income, uh, that shouldn't be uh, paid for for Social Security. The, uh, The wealth Wealthy people don't have to pay any Social Security contribution at all if they earn more than about one hundred and fifteen or one hundred sixteen thousand dollars a year. They don't have to pay any uh, Social Security contribution or medical care contribution on uh, their capital gains. The idea is to make labor pay for all of the Social Security, and then uh, to give so much money away to Wall Street that they say, oh, there's, there's no more money, uh, systems bankrupt, we're going to wipe out Social Security, just as uh, so many companies have wiped out uh, the pensions, uh, and the economy becomes a grab bag uh, for the rich. What about monetary policy, interest rates, and the supply of money in circulation? Who controls monetary policy, and how does it affect the economy? Uh, the the biggest banks put their own lobbyists in charge of the Federal Reserve, which was created in 1913 by uh, 14 by Woodrow Wilson to. Uh, take a monetary policy out of the hands of the Treasury and put it in the hands of Wall Street. So basically, uh, it's the lobbyists for the banking system that control the money supply, and they want to make sure that money goes into the banks without the banks being regulated, uh, without a single banker being jailed for fraud uh, that uh, caused uh, the crash. Uh, Basically, they've turned the banking system into a predatory monopoly instead of the public service that uh, it was supposed to be before the uh, private uh, takeover. So uh, the monetary policy really is debt policy uh, because money is debt. Uh, And the question is, 
what kind of uh, debt is the economy going to have? Uh, how are you going to uh, put money into the economy? Are you going to put money into the economy by uh, providing credit to build more factories, to build uh, more output, to uh, rebuild American manufacturing, to build rebuild America's infrastructure? Or are you going to give money to the banks simply to charge more money for people to buy homes, uh, more money for people to get an education as it goes uh, up in price, uh, and then foreclose on the homes or uh, uh, demand uh, huge payments from the students? So monetary policy is debt policy, and debt policy is essentially the, the debts are owed by the bottom 90% to the wealthiest 10%. So monetary policy is how the 10% can extract more and more interest, rent, and capital gains uh, from the economy by making money by impoverishing the economy rather than helping it get richer. The economy is always being planned by someone or some force, be it Wall Street, the government, or whatever. It's not the result of natural law, as you point out in your book. It seems like a lot of people think that the economy should somehow run itself without interference. Could you explain how this is an absurd idea? Well, it's an example of uh, the uh, rhetoric overcoming people's common sense. Every economy since the Stone Age has been planned. Uh, even in the Stone Age, people had to plan when to uh, uh, plant the crops, when to harvest them, uh, how much seed you had to keep over for the next year. Uh, you had to operate on credit during the crop year to uh, get beer, uh, draft animals. Uh, somebody's uh, in charge of every economy. So today, when they talk about an unplanned economy, they mean no government planning. They mean all the planning should be taken out of the hands of government and put in the hands of the 1%. Uh, and they say if the 1% control the economy, it's not a planned economy anymore because it's not planned by government, it's planned by Wall Street. So the question really of our economy is who's going to plan the American economy? Is it going to be the government of elected officials or is it going to be Wall Street? And uh, Wall Street uh, euphemizes its central planning by saying this is uh, a free market, meaning it's free of any government control over what we do. You emphasize the difference between the study of the 19th century classical political economy and modern-day economics. How and when and why did political economy become economics? Well, if you look at the books of uh, what almost everybody wrote in the 19th century, they called it political economy because e economics is political. Economics is what uh, politics has always been about. Who's going to get what? Uh, or as Lenin said, who whom? Who's going to do it to whom? Uh, it, it's a, all about uh, how society is going to make a decision as to... Uh, Who's going to get wealth, and how are they going to get wealth? Are they going to get wealth by acting productively or in parasitic ways? So uh, everything economics is really political. Well, an attempt uh, has been made by the new central planners of the economy, Wall Street, to pretend that uh, uh, what we're doing is not political. When we're cutting taxes on ourselves, that's a law of nature. That's not politics. There's nothing you can do about it. Uh, or as Margaret Thatcher said, there is no alternative. Uh, so the idea is to make 
people think there is no alternative because if they're getting poor and poor, if they're losing their home by defaulting on a mortgage, if they have to pay more and more money on the student loan so that they can't afford to buy a home, uh, or if they have to find the only kind of jobs they can get driving an Uber car, that uh, that's their fault that there is no alternative, that that's just nature. It's not the way in which the economy is malstructured. So uh, the whole attempt is to make people think, you are powerless. You cannot change what we do, because we 1% control the economy, and we are nature. We're God. There's nothing you can do about it. Your poverty is natural. It's not the result of our takeover since 1980. It's not a result of our predatory behavior. It's not a result of our capturing the Justice Department so that none of our bank fraudsters have gone to jail. It's, it's, uh, it's the law of nature itself. In your chapter on M, of course, you know, we have uh, chapters uh, from A to Z. In your chapter on M, you have an entry for Hyman Minsky, an economist who pioneered modern monetary theory and explained the three stages of the financial cycle in terms of rising debt leveraging. What is debt leveraging and how does it lead to a crisis? Debt leveraging means to buy something on credit. Uh, as an example, we'll take uh, home ownership in the United States. Uh, in uh, the 1940s, 50s, and even in the 1960s, if you took out a mortgage, the banker would look at your income, and uh, the idea was the, uh, that on the one hand, the house you buy, uh, the mortgage for your house, shouldn't absorb more than 25% of your income, more than a quarter. Uh, the idea was that you'd have enough money out of uh, the income you have to uh, pay the interest charge and the amortization and uh, basically uh, be able to pay off the mortgage 30 years later at the end of your working life. So uh, the, f the first stage of the economy was, uh, he called it uh, the hedge stage, uh, meaning that uh, you've hedged your bets, meaning that uh, the economy can afford to carry its debts. Well, the second stage of the economy, banks began to lend more and more and loosen their lending standards and uh, so that mortgages would uh, absorb much more than 25% uh, of the income. And uh, at a certain point, uh, people could not afford to amortize, that is to pay off the mortgage. All they could do was to pay the interest charge. And by the 1980s, uh, you had uh, uh, the federal government was lending up to uh, almost 40% of somebody's income, and the mortgages were written without any uh, amortization at all. All of the mortgage was paid simply uh, to carry uh, the existing uh, mortgage debt on a home. Uh, the banks didn't want to ever be repaid. They just wanted to uh, collect interest on as much money as they could. That was the second stage. And finally, Minsky said, the, uh, the Ponzi stage was when uh, the homeowner didn't even have enough money to pay the interest charge, but had to borrow the interest. So uh, uh, this was how uh, third world countries had uh, gotten through uh, the 1970s and the early 1980s. Uh, the government would, have, let's say, uh, Mexico or Brazil or Argentina would say, well, we don't have 
uh, the dollars to pay the debt, and the banks would say, we'll just add the interest onto the debt. Same thing with uh, a credit card or a mortgage. Uh, the mortgage a homeowner would say, well, I don't have enough money to pay the mortgage, and the bank would say, well, just take out a larger mortgage. We'll just uh, lend you the money to pay the interest. That's the Ponzi stage, and uh, it was named after the Ponzi scheme, uh, Carlo Ponzi. And that's the stage that the economy entered uh, around 2007, uh, 2008. That's what caused the crash, and we're still in that stage now. Uh, the debts have all been left in place, as you and I have spoken about before, and uh, people are having uh, to borrow the interest. If you're on a credit card and you have to pay a monthly bill, but you really don't have enough money to uh, pay down the debt, well, your credit card balance is going to go up and up and up every month simply by adding the interest charge onto the debt. Well, all of this is going to grow at compound interest, and the result is uh, an exponential growth that uh, doubles uh, the debt that you have in, uh, in very little time. That's what any kind of interest is a rate at which debt doubles. And if debt keeps doubling and doubling, then uh, it's going to crowd out uh, all the other expenses in your budget, and you'll have to pay more and more money to the banks for student loans, credit card debt, auto loans, uh, mortgage debt, and uh, you'll have less and less uh, to spend on goods and services. That's why the economy is shrinking right now, uh, and that's why people nowadays aren't able to do what their uh, parents were able to do uh, 50 years ago. And uh, uh, basically afford to buy a home that they can live in simply out of uh, paying one quarter of uh, uh, the income that they earn on the job. Dr. Michael Hudson, thank you so very much. Well, it's good to be here, as always, Bonnie. Speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson, today's show has been The Vocabulary of Economic Deception. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri-Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, among many others. His latest books are Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Destroy the Global Economy, and J is for Junk Economics, a guide to reality in an age of deception. Dr. Hudson acts as an economic advisor to governments worldwide on finance and tax law. Visit his website at michael-hudson.com. That's michael-hudson.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaro Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Which is the evolution of the
control of your own cipher And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace Give thanks, live life, and release You dig me? You got me?